If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's page 816 in our church Bibles. And in just a moment, I'm going to read the first four verses of chapter 16. If you're visiting or if you're, it's been a while, the reason why we're in these verses is because this is a place we should be. We've been working through 1 Corinthians for quite some time now. We're almost through. And so here we are this morning, actually in a second part of, of uh, a message that we began last Sunday. And here we are all spared to finish out this Sunday. So I'm going to read the Bible. We're going to seek the help we need so much from God. And then we're going to go through it. Here we are. Chapter 16, verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Men may God bless the reading of his word and grant us understanding of it. We're going to spend some time in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 as well. So it might serve you well if you might um, put your finger there as we're praying so that um, you'll be able to flip to those passages as we um, work through these together. So let's pray. God and Father, we thank you for the absolute privilege of public worship and to be able to sing. Thank you that you give us voices that are able to sing, God. And we simply would ask this morning that your spirit would be our teacher and that you would grant to us this morning the grace to know and to feel our Lord Jesus Christ as our highest treasure. And we would ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus in his earthly ministry said, because he knew the heart of men and women, that no one can serve two masters that we cannot serve both God and money. His reason was that we would either hate the one and love the other, or we would be tied to the hip of one, we'd be devoted to one, and we would despise the other. We cannot serve both God and money. We may be able to pay lip service to God in this and get away with it for a time. However, when our hearts are exposed, and if we remain unrepentant, it will show up in time that our true master was all along gold and not God. Martin Lloyd-Jones a while back said, uh, there are powers that can counterfeit almost everything in the Christian life. And of course, money is surely one of those powers. It's our fallen nature which easily worships money. And when we love money more than God, we fail to see what is truly valuable. Money seems so tangible, right? God's invisible. Money seems so certain. God, at times, we would admit, he seems kind of uncertain. Money, when you have it, makes you feel like you can do things all the time. God often doesn't give his resources until what? Just the nick of time. And because of this, we bow down too easily to the one who's actually dead, money, but who still seems powerful and reliable. There's a great maxim that helps us along the way that says, we become like the God we worship, right? So as our life unfolds, the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and so on, we become like the God we worship. And because of our fallen nature, we're tempted to start listening to people who are loaded down with personal convictions and have just enough knowledge of the scriptures to make them dangerous. And we follow their ways and their convictions and not God's way with money. And as we think this through, is it not true that much of our world at this time and even in the church Is always seen everything in economic terms, right? Of dollars and cents, of keeping and saving. Uh, We turn people into machines and we tinker with them to try to get more production. We need more out of you, more, more, more. 
And sometimes when people think, well, money's good, then, then God must be happy. And if money's bad, then surely God must be mad. So we're tempted to bring calculators to church and not tender hearts and, and hungry minds and worn out Bibles. Loved ones, the values of this world are largely materialistic. Its goals are worldly and chiefly self-centered. The world does not give a rip about the expansion of God's kingdom. It serves no father in heaven. It has no hope of a God who will come down and care for them proper. Therefore, what's the conclusion? Well, money is valued and sought after by man because of the supposed security it brings, but especially in our time and age, the honor that it's thought to bring, right? In other words, if you're rich, then you must have done a number of things right. You must be a spectacular savior. You must have some kind of mind. Wow. Or in the Christian culture, man, you must be a great giver because on the surface, it would seem like you are under God's blessing. Look at all that money. Now, why would one think this? Why would a Christian think this? The Pharisees considered wealth a sure sign of God's blessing. And Jesus stunned them with the story of the very poor Lazarus and the, and the rich man. Right? And Father Abraham rebukes the dead rich man. This is Luke 16, 25. Remember that in your lifetime, rich man, you received good things. While you, Lazarus, poor man, received bad things. But now he, Lazarus, is comforted here in heaven and you, rich man, are in agony in hell. Also, the, the minor and major prophets in the Old Testament. They're filled with texts revealing a many of God's people enjoying fabulous wealth and prosperity, which would have been no problem at all if they would have just used the wealth God gave them properly and principally and not so selfishly. And so God had to send prophets to tell them, guys, what are you doing? You're not sharing. Your, li- your life's all wrapped up in yourself. Your giving is for show and you take so much for yourself. Uh, you want to hurry up the Sabbath day so that you can go to the market and buy and sell. That's Isaiah 58. But when it comes to my commands and my glory and my work, you, you parcel out in bits and pieces. For you, it's bucket loads. For me and others, it's teaspoons. In fact, you can read this in Malachi chapter 1 verse 13. The people of God would say, what a burden. Another Sabbath, another plate being passed. What a burden. And so the prophets had to say to the people of God, thus saith the Lord, this is not right. This is not right. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. The sin of your sister sister Sodom was this. She lived with her daughters in the lap of luxury. Proud, gluttonous and lazy. They ignored the oppressed and the poor. They put on airs and lived obscene lives. And you know what happened? I did away with them. Prosperity blinded the people of God in Amos' day. The demands of justice and true worship and proper care. They rebelled against God's decrees. Jeremiah would tell his people, why are you digging your own wells? Why are you just so wrapped up in all you? Isaiah 56, 11, like, like a greedy dog, they're never satisfied. Ignorant shepherds following their own path and seeking their own gain. Loved ones, in all honesty... Material blessing should be the least satisfying of God's rewards. The pursuit of wealth and security at the expense of Christ is part of the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than Jesus Christ to give them peace and to make them feel esteemed. Now, do we need money? Of course we do. Does God want us to be well cared for? 
Of course he does. Listen to your Bible, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Command those who are rich in this present world. I wonder how that sermon went over. Anyway, command the rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything, and here's the key, for our enjoyment. And the Greek word for enjoyment is apollowisis, and we get our English word applause from that word. So you look at what God gives you. A new dress. Hey, God. New car. Yay. New house. Yay. Pants. Yay. Book. Yay. You applaud. You enjoy what God has given you. So the last time we said that we cannot be driven by bad instruction or personal convictions when it comes to stewardship. Okay, why stewardship and not ownership? Well, because everything that we have comes to, comes to us by way of God's grace which is why we have to give an account for it. If it was all ours and only ours, then no accounting would be necessary. But it's not our money. It's God's. Therefore, we'll give an account. And the account, in part, will be how... Well, let me say it like this. It will not be how much you have at the end. God has very little concern about that. But the account will be how much did you do with what you had For the sake of the gospel. That's the principle. How much did you do with what you had for the sake of the gospel? Now, let me add to this because we have to be balanced and we live in a freaky world. (laughs) No one but God through his word can tell you to do with uh, with the money he has given you, right? No one, no one but God through his word can tell you what to do with the money he has given you, which means no one, no preacher, no pastor, no evangelical leader, no uh, whoever, celebrity, Christian star, your Christian brother, your Christian sister cannot tell you straight you shouldn't buy X or don't buy new because everybody knows Christians should buy used, Or you shouldn't shop there. Or you shouldn't eat there. Frankly, that is no one's business. Especially my business. And we need not apologize to anyone if you have good things. 1 Timothy 6.17. Hey, you enjoy them. And you thank God for them. Read your Bible. Now sometimes in the evangelical church, there's what I call the blessing police, right? And they're trying to police all of God's blessings. Why did did you get that? How much do you have? Uh, You can't eat there. That's a pretty nice size house, mister. Uh-huh. Right? Don't give to that family too much because I know they've got a rich uncle somewhere. You know, that's all silly stuff. You will not find Jesus telling anyone not to buy anything in the whole of the New Testament. In fact, he won't tell anyone where to shop as well. He partied at houses which were owned by very wealthy people. He spoke nothing to them about their wealth. But what he did speak to them was gospel concern and gospel square. Now, Jesus would tell people to sell stuff and to give generously the money you earn from your selling to those who need it. But again, you won't find Jesus in the New Testament saying, hey, thus saith the Lord, don't buy the X-111 chariot. Buy the X-50 and make sure it's used. You don't find that. Jesus understands this world, fallen as it is. He understands how it must function. It's okay if somebody somewhere is paying $40 for a steak in a restaurant. Don't freak out about that. There could be gospel conversations unfolding in that high-dollar restaurant. So you see, we need to understand these things. And we need to know our Bible. So we said that two texts, this text that we read in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, were patterns and principles which God has given us from his word through Paul's pen on how 
God's people should give. This is very important. This is God's pattern for us. And we said last time that this kind of talk can prove difficult for some. It doesn't have to be, but it, it could be. And you ask yourself, well, why so difficult? Well, partially, I mean, we live in a very subjective age. People defy authority of any kind, especially in the church. So when Paul says, do this, it's not always easy for Christians to do this. We'd have to admit that. The second thing is our context, right? Our context, by and large, is one of a very conservative nature, which leads with saving and pennywise and spending, which is, of course, that's fine. Just as long as you understand that one, it's not the only way to do things. And it's possible to be frugal and at the same time disguise your greed, your unbelief, and your disobedience. And again, there are some other ways. Some people might live under the conviction that the highest amount of money coming out of their home will not be a house payment, will not be a car payment, will not be an investment or a savings, but, but to God's kingdom work and to God's people. And that will have the priority all the time. In other words, not conservative, but liberal, almost like crazy liberal in their giving. Now, where do you get that from? Well, I get it from the Bible, Isaiah 32, 8. The liberal man makes liberal pan, plans, and by liberal deeds he stands. You don't understand what Isaiah is saying? The generous man, that's how, that's his foundation. He makes generous plans, and by those generous deeds, he stands, he takes his security. And so, if that person can't save as much as they like now, and if they're so busy for Jesus that they can't be frugal as they need to be, that's fine. That's fine. God knows this, and he will respond as he see fit. Okay, so we had questions that were driven by the text. The first question was, what was this collection for? You'll see the answer in verse 1. They were for God's people. God's people and the church in Jerusalem were very poor. That's our second question. Why were the Jerusalem Christians poorer than all the other Christians? Weren't they giving? No, listen, two reasons. Number one, we learned that they were suffering deeply for the sake of Jesus Christ. Their Jewish counterparts had them cut off from making a decent living. The Jews hated Jesus at that time, and so they took it out on his people. But you know, no one has ever been able to hurt the church of Jesus Christ by boycotting it financially. I mean, I need to say that again. No one has ever been able to hurt the church of Jesus Christ by boycotting it financially. And it didn't hurt the Jerusalem church. The second reason was that there was a famine. And it hit the people hard. And the need increased. Third question. Why was Paul so concerned? Short answer. Paul's a Christian. And Christians care deeply about the needs of their brothers and sisters. Long answer, the honor of Christ's name is at stake here. What would it look like to the Gentiles and to the pagans if God's own people would not help their brothers and sisters in Christ when the need arose? What would that look like? What would Jesus appear like to people? And also, Jews and Gentiles at that time, they didn't really love each other. So when Jesus came and changed their hearts, they were one now, and they revealed that oneness, not just with lip service, but with the giving of their dollars and the giving of their cents. Fourth question, when was the collection to be taken? Well, verse 2, anytime they like. No, of course not, right? It was on the first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? Doesn't it only matter if I give and not when I give? Well, apparently the pattern that God wants us to have and to enjoy is this. On the first day of the week, as an act of worship, the highest good as a pattern of life is to give on the first day of the week. The first day of the week was the Lord's day. 
The early church gathered on the first day of the week as a body, as a visible expression of the body of Jesus Christ. And when they gathered to worship, giving was part of their gathering. Fifth question, okay, then who was to give? Well, again, the answer is there in verse 2b, everyone. No one was exempt from the privilege to give. The poor should give, the rich should give, and everyone in between. And remember, we were greatly helped by the story of the poor widow who Jesus celebrated as she gave everything she had. And we learned a principle. It's not how much you give. It is actually how much you keep of what you have which gets the attention of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. It's not how much you give. It's actually how much you keep of what you have which gets the attention of Jesus Christ. In other words, our generosity to the Lord's work is, is best determined by what we give when we have little, not when we have a lot. So think with me. If you give a lot and you have a lot, sometimes you won't feel a thing because you have a lot. And where is the sacrifice in that? And one might ask, is this how little we would think of our King Jesus? Our final question and maybe the most important question, okay, how much should we give? And we, we began by answering the question, and we're going to finish that out for the rest of our time this morning. And the first thing we said is that percentage is not a New Testament principle. You'll find nothing of a percentage given in the whole of the New Testament to the church. Proportion, ratio, principle. That's how we give. Proportion, ratio, principle, but not percentage. So for the Christian who gives 10% and think they're fine, they may not be. They may not be. It's very good that you give. But again, the New Testament gives us no percentage. It deals only in proportions and ratios and principles. Verse 2, a sum of money in keeping with your income. And this is what that means. All giving in the local church is discretionary. It is a matter of the person's free will. Now, it's not a question of if they should give. That's they should give. But the giving is discretion discretionary, a matter of their free will. In other words, the principle here is that there is to be a link to being the sum of money that you and I set aside to give and the way that God has prospered us. A sum of money, verse 2, again, in keeping with your income. The tithe or 10%, it had its day, but that day is past. Now it's far, far better. Far, far better. Think of it this way. What if you were required, if you're married, what if you were required to kiss your spouse only 10% of the time, right? And if you did the 10% thing, you're covered. And, and then he or she could never say anything like, well, you don't love me, Billy, or you don't love me, Jill. I mean, at least on the surface, you could say, well, baby, I gave you the 10%, right? I put in my quota. Don't give me any of that you don't love me stuff. Do, do you know how horrible that would be? If you're married, kids, it's coming. <laughs> Would you like those scheduled, planned out, percentaged robot kisses? Right. Must kiss wife, must kiss husband, 10% quota must be met, quota 8%, quota 9%, 10%, good, never have to kiss her for the rest of the week. Paul, under new covenant grace, he breaks that door open. He says, baby, you come here. 
And I'm going to lay one on you. And you say, baby, come back here. And you give her a kiss that ends all kisses until you kiss her the next time and the next time and the next time. And because she's your wife or because he's your husband, it's like, what do you want, baby? Right? Yeah, you big stud. What do you need? It's all yours. As opposed to, does not compute. I gave you 10%. Quota is met. Need to go back to chair. Sit. Watch TV. Please do not ask me again. Quota was met. You know that. I mean, huh? Now, do you see why we need guidance? Principles. Proportions. Not percentages. Second thing. We need to give wholeheartedly. This is why it would be wise if your Bible was open to 2 Corinthians 8. True giving always begins with the giving of ourselves to the Lord. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 5. Paul speaks with joy about the generosity of the Macedonian church to try to light a fire in the Corinthian church. And he says, they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So true giving always begins with the giving of ourselves to the Lord. In the same way when you, when you get married, right? The marriage service usually has something like, you know, you're going to put the ring on the finger and you say, with this ring, I thee wed, with all my worldly goods I give to thee. In other words, you're telling your spouse, when you get me, you get all of this, right? You got all of it. And it might not be much as it was, as it was in my case, but she got me. She got all of me. So first I give myself to you and then all I have is yours. There's, there's no prenup agreements. There's, there's no separate stashes. There's no untouchables. No funny business like that. We two are one. When you got me, you got all of me. When I got you, I got all of you. We two are one. And that's the picture that Paul wants to give. When the Lord Jesus Christ got us, he got all of us. He did not just get 10% of us. He does not get 10% of what we own. He gets it all. The totality. 100%. The house is his. The car is his. The vacation homes his. The accounts. The investments. The resources. The inheritance. The tax benefits. The land. The animals. It is all his. True giving begins with the giving of myself, all of me, to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 8.5. Thirdly, when we give, we give thoughtfully. True giving is in response to what Jesus has given to us. And by the way, if you have a worship folder, you'll see all this stuff here. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Okay, so Jesus Christ is the creator of the ends of the earth. He is the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the wealth of every mine. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the King of heaven. He is the one who tells the seas, this far you shall go and no more. He is sovereign over all things. And he comes into this world as a baby, born in the low seat, a Bethlehem straw heap. And he tells his followers, foxes have holds, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, no place to lay his head. He gets the pulp beat out of him for our sins. He gets hounded, motives questioned at every turn for our sins. He spat on, he struck, he's... Nailed and speared for our sins. Why did he all do all this? For our sins. In other words, through his poverty, we become rich. Benefits of the gospel. C.T. Studd. Most of us know this quote. It makes all the sense in the world. If Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no amount of sacrifice that I can make for him can be too great. 
That's what Paul's saying. Fourth, we give personally and we give cheerfully. The amount of our giving is to be personally determined and cheerfully given. How much should I give? 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. In other words, uh, no arm twisting, right? No sob stories, lots of sad pictures. Don't play mind games with people. Just think. You, you, you have your Bible on your lap and you study it. You hear the Bible preach and you listen to it. And then in your heart, the place of your heart, so you have Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God's truth and your conscience and the need, and you, and you decide, is this for Jesus' glory? Is this revealed will stuff? Will it help his people who represent him? Then think it out, and, 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 and if the answer is yes, then hikastos kathos proitia ti cardia. Give what you decided in your heart. Each one of you should give what you decided in your heart to give. That's what Paul's saying. So this is not about if you should give, we should give. But it's deciding on the amount that you should give, the the portion, the ratio. Each one of you should give what you decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, under compulsion. And here's the wonderful part, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know the word, the Greek word is hilarion, hilarious giver. He loves it when people go nuts when they give. You want to give that? Yeah. It's crazy, I know, but let's do it. Rather than locking up when the plate goes by, right? We know that. Plate is going by, our breathing is getting heavy, our heart is being faster, our lip is biting. Need more, more time asking for money. I'm just. Ugh. I was thinking, I don't know this to be true, but I was thinking that some Christians now, if they were in the Corinthian church, would be so good at talking people out of giving to the need of the Jerusalem church. I mean, I think they'd be so good they could turn the whole thing around. You know what? They should send us a check. Yeah. And, and you know what? I bet they have money hidden somewhere because, after all, they're Jewish. Right. And you know what I did when I needed money? I went out and got a job and I picked up rocks and I picked up sticks. That's how I did it and they should do it. See, God says, be cheerful in your giving. Be hilarious. This is terrific. Terrific. I get to give to God again. Right? And if you, if you did determine to go this route, so, so you're thinking with your Bible open, the preaching is coming to you, you're making a good square decision, revealed will stuff, then you have the liberty to grab a handful of money And give it to the glory of God. And you can laugh all the way to the bank. Not for a deposit. Not yet. That might be coming. But for a withdrawal. That's what Paul is saying. Cheerful. Let me just give you one example. This is not very flattering. But it needs to be said. So at our family Thanksgiving dinner table. Just have a few rules. And one of the rules is. Is why we are eating. I ask everyone to say something nice about everyone around the table. Right? So when the kids were younger. It was, you know, it was like gold. Everybody loved to do it. And they get older and... You know, it just, now it's a big joke. And dad's a big joke because he makes everybody say nice things around the table. So, so then they get, they get mean. And they start saying mean things. And so they say, ha ha, when dad sends a letter to anyone, he always wants to stick a gift card in it. And then they said, when dad gets a card, his return, or excuse me, when dad gets a gift card, his return thank you note always has a gift card in it. Ha ha ha. You know, ha, ha, ha. But you know, what a reputation to have in your home, right? At least the kids know that dad's generous. And he's pretty easy to ask for money, to be real honest with you. I mean, you give me $100 in my wallet, I'm dangerous. Because I'll give it all away in seconds. And that's fine. I've been doing that for years. Hilarious. Cheerful. Loved ones, do we know how much money we spend on ourselves in a given week? Do we do that grudgingly? 
And reluctantly, we shouldn't, if you do, don't do that. But when you're in line at McDonald's, I mean, when you're in line at McDonald's and you're going to get the two for five special, right? The two Big Macs for five dollars, which I think is an incredible deal. You're not in there trying to talk yourself down about the, you're like, you don't deserve this. You know you don't, you know? You're just terrible. You get the dollar hamburger and that's it. That's all you deserve. And you get water and walk out of there with your head down. You don't do that. What do you do? You're like, I'm going to take the two for five. My friend behind me, I want to buy him the two for five. And the lovely lady to my left, you get her a two for five. Hilarious, generous, happy about the whole thing. Why? Because the dead money doesn't rule anything. Your father in heaven rules over everything. So we give personally and we give cheerfully. Okay, you ready? How should we give? Proportionately and keeping with your income. No percentage, no more wholeheartedly. True giving always begins with the giving of ourselves to the Lord. We give thoughtfully. True giving is always in response to what Jesus has given us. He has given us everything. If he asked for everything, he would be fine in the asking. Fourth, personally and cheerfully. The amount of our giving is to be personally determined, right? Bible open, listen to the Bible, preach, think, decide. And then when you make your decision, you have a skip in your step and big joy in your heart, and you throw the money down in the box or the plate, however they collect it, or wherever we go. You see? Fifth, sacrificially we give, which will always lead to our generosity. True giving will cost us something. And loved ones, when the Pharisee in us hears, true giving will cost me something, the Pharisee in us goes, okay, let me get my calculator out, and I get my budget sheet out, and then they'll ask the question, okay, true giving will cost me something, then tell me how much it'll cost. I need to factor it into my budget. That is not what Paul is saying. That's not what God is saying. I'm going to give you a principle here. It's a lovely principle. David, 2 Samuel 24, 24. I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Okay, what was the context? David was told by God to build an altar to the Lord in a certain place. There was a gentleman named Arona the Jebusite. He owned all the stuff that David needed to build that altar. And Arona, the Jebusite, wants to give David everything for free. He says, David, just take it all. David replies. Listen to what he says. I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. In other words, I need to feel this. I need to feel like pieces of me are being poured out to my God. I have to. I have to. He's my Father in heaven. Now, sometimes in our current culture, we're such brainiacs. We're going to like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give and I'm, I'm going to spread it around so I won't even feel a thing. I won't even feel it when I give. It'll be great. No. <laughs> True giving is sacrificial. 2 Corinthians 8.3. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. So we are to give sacrificially and generously. Now, the very best quote I've ever read about this principle is actually from C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to read it to you, and I just commend it to you, okay? This isn't gospel, but I just want to commend it to you. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure, our comforts, our luxuries, our amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. 
pretty fair, pretty honest. In other words, you can't say yes to yourself all the time when it comes to dollars and cents. Something wrong with that. That's what he's saying. This takes us then to another principle, the principle of equality. My guess is that this might be new to most of us here. True giving will always be mindful of others. 2 Corinthians 8.14. Listen to the Bible. Our desire, says Paul, in this whole Jerusalem giving, is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Equality. So at present time, the Corinthian church had more than enough, and they were to take what they had, so that in turn they could share it, so that in turn when the time came, their need would be covered by other churches. And again, the principle was equality. And so Paul uses an Old Testament story you can see there to underpin the principle. When God gave manna to his people in the desert, large families gathered what they needed and it was a lot. And there was always enough. Small families gathered what they needed and it wasn't very much, but there was always enough. And there was always enough because God was behind the whole thing. Everyone had what they needed and so no one lacked. The point then, Paul is taking the prosperity of some alongside the needs of others, and he's calling the church for an adjustment, which is this, the lessening of the needs of others by the generosity of others. In other words, in the church, the wealthy are to keep in mind the needs and concerns of others and give in light of this. I mean, that's what families do. Let me give you an example. You're a family of six, and mom and dad are working hard. And let's say the call to give comes from the church. They give, and it hurts. Good. That's what Paul said. However, the wealthy person ought to have the sense to think this through. And since God wants equality in this manner, they should give a strong portion to ease the burden of the larger family with the current needs. The family is not always going to have that need. But for at that moment, in that time, the need is there. In other words, the wealthy ought to give more so that those not as wealthy, at least at that time, with larger responsibilities, at least at that time, may be helped equality. Now, this is not socialism. This is not everybody has to have the same wage, same stuff, same house, same car. Uh, Everybody has to buy you stuff and everybody has to give 10%. This is not socialism. This is equality. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have? Rich or poor? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, and you did, why would you behave? Why would you boast as though you did not? Inequality in our giving can break fellowship. And we have to fight like the Dickens to make sure that doesn't happen. When we became Christians, Jesus takes over everything. He holds the deed to everything that we have and all that we are. So to give away, get away with just 10%, for many of us, that would be just sneaking out. And that's not good. And I can promise you that's not God. Finally, final point. Can you believe it? We're almost done. Remember God's generosity, right? You know, I I wrote this down real quick. Do you know how many meals I've eaten so far in my life that God provided for me? Almost 54,000 meals from the, that's assuming I ate three times a day, which I probably did. 54,000 meals. That's pretty darn good care, isn't it? Remember God's generosity. Sometimes these sermons go big on the, hey, God will bless you part and very little on the other part that we just threw. Well, I look at you, you people look fine. 
And I'm so happy that you look fine. You're, you're eating good. You're living well. Praise the Lord. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Paul goes on. You'll be enriched in every way. So not just money, Paul. No, not just money, but, but money too. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Let's say you don't really like what Paul said. Well, listen to the words of Jesus. This is Jesus, Luke six thirty-eight. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured out into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, stingy in, stingy out. And try to play the stingy game with God. And see where that takes you. See where that takes you. I struggled all week. I said, should I say this? Should I not say this? Well, I said it in the first service. I'll say it in the second service. My wife and I have been married for 25 years. For 26 years, we've been trying to give the way that I just explained to you. It's been great. <laughs> There's been a few nights where we're a little sleepless, like, <gasps> but that's okay. It's good for us. It keeps us on our knees. It keeps us humble. Point is, past 25 years of my life, and I'm sure most of you could say something in this order. It's been absolutely wonderful. We don't have a lot of money in the bank. It's okay. We got a plan. It's pretty decent. We got a way. Personal convictions drive some of it. Biblical principles drive all of it. So what I'm trying to say in a crazy way is trust God. Trust God. We've been trying to do this for 26 years and, and the past 26 years of my life, I could say, have been the best 26 years of my life. The measure of all love is its giving. The measure of the love of God is in the giving of the cross of Christ. The measure of our love for Christ is in measure revealed in our giving. You see, that's why Jesus said, you can't serve God and you can't serve money. It'll never work. It'll never work. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the, actually the liberating truth of your word. That we can think with our Bibles open and listening to preaching to try to make good decisions about how we should give to the needs of the church, to the needs of your people. And what we find in all this is, Father, you are incredibly generous, you're incredibly wise, and you are incredibly fair. Equality is what you seek in the church. What a great principle for 21st century living in America. So will you help us to get this right and have mercy on us and be patient with us when we get this wrong? And as you always have, will you continue to provide richly for the needs of your people and the needs of your church? We pray this for Jesus' sake and may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and remain on all who believe. Amen.